Our passage from tonight for tonight comes from Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And we're continuing on through uh, the book of Acts. As we looked at earlier today, uh, Stephen's arrest and being brought before uh, the, the council, the Sanhedrin. Now, uh, tonight we will see the beginning of Stephen's defense that he makes uh, before the Sanhedrin uh, in this very long passage that starts uh, here and runs for, through verse 53. So Acts chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, and you should be able to find that again on page 1163 in the Pew Bibles if you would desire to follow along. Again, hear the word of God. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Again, let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word uh, that you've provided to us. Lord, we ask you as we go through this passage that you would open our understanding, open our, our hearts, open our minds, and uh, help us to see indeed how we might take these words and apply them to our own lives, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, so we look this morning again at, as I said, at uh, Stephen's arrest and how he was taken uh, before the, the Sanhedrin, the leadership of Jerusalem, the 70 plus the uh, high priest, uh, and how uh, they were, he, he was brought there by the uh, men from the uh, synagogue of the freedmen uh, because they didn't like what he had to say because their hostility toward the gospel message which is again as I said this morning that's what the world thinks of us they are hostile to us even though they may be religious in some respects they do not approve of the gospel of Jesus Christ so they are hostile to us so they've taken him and they brought him before the council or the Sanhedrin and he has been accused of several things. He's been accused of uh, 
blaspheming, blaspheming Moses and the law and blaspheming the temple and God. And uh, these charges are not true, although he certainly has said things that may be falsely or, uh, or mis misinterpreted as being blasphemous, especially by those who don't know the truth of the gospel. And again, these, these were Jewish men, but they didn't understand or accept the gospel, so they rejected what he said and accused him of blasphemy uh, by the things he said. And as we saw earlier today, the passage of Jesus' arrest before the Sanhedrin, it was a very similar situation where he was being accused of things that were not true, and they were lying about him, bringing false witnesses, and so on. The same thing happened with uh, Stephen. Well, so as we look tonight, uh, this passage is sometimes referred to as an apologetic, as he as he, it doesn't mean he's apologizing. <laughs> we hear that word and we think it's somebody's apologizing, like, I'm sorry about my Christian faith. That's not what it's about. An apologetic is, an, is a defense. It's an explanation of the truth of the gospel. And in his case, it is specifically defending himself against the charges that, are, charges that have been brought against him, but is also defending the Christian faith against these men who have come against the gospel message. And so he is making this uh, speech, uh, which in some ways might even seem a little strange and convoluted to us, because he's making specific points to them that we might not identify very easily in our own understanding, because we don't have the particular misunderstanding that these men had, that the men of the uh, Sanhedrin had. But nevertheless, he's very uh, clearly making his point to them as we see as the, the speech progresses towards the end he makes them very angry <laughs> and to the point that they decide to kill him they are very clear on the things that he is trying to say even if we find difficulty understanding it but anyway at this point he is beginning the speech and uh, he starts by giving them some history this is stuff that they all know or should know Again, we read the Genesis account ourselves just a little bit ago. They all had that Bible. They all knew it. Uh, and it, was very, it was very clear what he was saying uh, was things that they should have already had well in their under, understanding, but yet they did not. They knew the, the scriptures in, in the way. Uh, they, they knew the, the scriptures in a way, but they didn't understand them fully. And he was, defend, he was showing uh, Abraham and showing the faith that Abraham walked by which, again, they were not able to understand that. As Jews, they looked at such things as circumcision as the means by which you are made right with God, and uh, that, that was not the case. And so uh, that's one of the things that uh, he demonstrates to them is not the case uh, when it comes to uh, righteousness before God. So anyway, so he starts his, his, polemic, his uh, apologetic here, by talking about Abraham in these verses that we're looking at today, and he'll go on to talk about uh, the rest of the patriarchs and Moses and so on. But right now he's talking particularly about Abraham. And he, but first, before he even gets to that with his apologetic, he uh, starts out with a, a brief statement as he responds. The high priest says in verse 1, Are these things so? Now, he probably, he sounds like he's being uh, generous, but the fact of the matter is he knows he doesn't believe that uh, Stephen is innocent. So he's asking, like, well, are, 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 we, are you being falsely accused? And, and it's very disingenuous, I'm sure, of him, because he, he really does believe that 
Stephen is guilty as charged. Uh, and Stephen responds, and this is important, he responds with respect. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He starts with respect. Uh, um, when I was in seminary, my, my apologetics professor, who happens to be here tonight, I better be careful what I say. <laughs> he brought this verse up very often in our class, and Greg Bonson was very fond of this verse, as I recall. First uh, Peter 3.15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Now, they weren't asking him for the hope that was in him in the sense that they were, wow, we would like to have this hope. They saw that he had the face of an angel, as we saw earlier, despite all the accusations. But they really weren't interested in finding out why he had the face of an angel before them. They were very hostile to him. So they're not asking to find out because they want to become believers. They are asking because they want to continue to accuse him and bring him uh, uh, to their version of justice. Well, but nevertheless, he starts out with brothers and fathers. We, we have synod and presbytery. That's often when someone comes up to the microphone to speak before the presbytery, they will say, brothers and fathers. It's a, sh a sign of respect. So he does show respect. Now, you might uh, think that later on in his speech, he doesn't sound so respectful as he's really dishing it out to them and telling them how wrong they are later on, shortly before they decide to stone him. But indeed, he begins by trying to appeal to them. You earn the right to be heard. That's really what it boils down to. You know, we come at people both guns blazing, whacking them over the head with a Bible. We don't get very far. You have to uh, earn the right to be heard. And so I think he is attempting to do that before he begins with his discourse uh, so, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then he goes on from there uh, to tell us about Abraham. And so that's what we're going to look, on, look at the rest of this passage. He begins by telling us in the next couple verses that God gave Abraham faith to go out even before he knew precisely where God wanted him to go. He didn't, he'd never been there before. He didn't understand where, where God was actually sending him. Uh, but yet he went out. Uh, take a look at those verses. Verse 2, the second part of verse 2 through 4, says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. When it says God appeared, a lot of times I think we just gl gloss over that. He made a manifestation of himself. And very often we see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it says he will appear as a man, as later on he did to Abraham. He appeared uh, looking as a man. He came in human form. Well, that's the same here. It doesn't specifically say that, but that's what exactly he's doing. He appeared to Abraham uh, as a theophany, as a man, uh, um, in, in, in human form. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. So, he was obedient. Now, again, uh, it's important for us to understand what's happened up to this point. After the flood of Noah, God told the human race to do what he told Adam and Eve to do in the first place, and that is to go out into all the world to multiply and subdue the earth. That was the job that mankind was given. We're supposed to spread Eden throughout the entire world. And, of course, Adam and Eve failed at that. 
But after the flood, he's telling them to do that. He's given the same mandate he gave in creation. And instead of listening to God, what did they say? No, we're going to hang out together. We're going to build ourselves a name. We're going to build a tower uh, to, to make uh, a ziggurat, as they would call that, to make God kind of like an idol so we can control God. That's what the basic idea was. We don't have to answer to him. He'll have to answer to us if we build this tower. And God, of course, became angry, came down and said to them, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And he confused their languages, and he, and he divorced humanity at that point and spread them out throughout the, the whole world with their uh, different languages. But a very short time after that is when he chose Abram. And Abram's living there in that hotbed of uh, the human race history in Mesopotamia and in, the, in Chaldea, which is the same place as Babel, Babel, Babylonia. This is where he came from, uh, in Ur of the Chaldees. He, uh, God calls him from there because God wants a special people of his own. As he's divorced the rest of the world, he wants a special people of his own. And so he calls Abram to be the progenitor of that group of people. But he also wants to bring the rest of humanity back to him. So that's why, as we saw earlier, it said, all the nations will be blessed through Abram. Because God intended to not leave the human race out on their own forever. He desired to bring all nations back to him. But it starts by his picking one person, Abram, to be his special person, to be the father of the nation of Israel, ultimately, and to be the father of our faith. And so at this point, he sends them out. Uh, and again, Abram doesn't know what, what's going on at this point, but he does so in faith. Uh, he, and it's a reminder to you and me that we are to trust God and his word. Sometimes that's a little hard for us to do. Uh, when God's word tells you to do something, you do it. <laughs> you do it whether you understand it or not. Maybe eventually you will understand it. I think of like uh, the, the Ten Commandments we have, thou shalt not covet. How easy is it is for us to say, what's the big problem with coveting? That's, just, that's inside my head. It's just me. Nobody knows it. And so a young Christian particularly might say, that's not a big problem if I covet, if I want something that's not mine. But the problem with that is, is coveting means that something's coming from your heart. This is what you desire. You don't just covet it. Sooner or later, you start getting worse about it and wanting to take something that's not yours. You covet your neighbor's stuff. Next thing, you might decide to swipe his stuff. And everybody agrees that stealing's wrong. But we don't realize how that gradually sneaks up on us. Uh, when we have that kind of temptation that, we're, uh, with, that we entertain. Or you might decide to have an affair with your, husband, with your neighbor's wife or husband because of the fact that you covet that person. So you may not understand right away why God says do this or don't do that. But the fact of the matter is he has reasons for everything. And ultimately, even if we don't understand in this life, we will in the next uh, the only Father's Day message I'm giving you today is this. Father knows best. Remember the television show, Father Knows Best. God the Father knows best. Remember when you were a kid, uh, you asked your father or mother, can I do this or can I go with my friends and do that? And they say, no. And you said, why not? What was their answer? Because I said so. 
That's all you need to know. <laughs> and the same goes for God. You don't necessarily have to know why he's telling you to do something or not to do it. Being obedient is the most important thing. And again, God usually does reveal to us his reasons for why he wants us to do things. So Abram was trusting God at his word, even though he didn't know what was going on yet. He didn't really realize what was happening, uh, where he was going to go. Well, then in the next verses, uh, we see that God gave Abraham faith to believe in God's promise for land and for offspring, uh, even though they both seemed impossible at that point. Look again at those verses 4b through 5. It said, And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land. So he, he took him from Haran and removed him there to uh, the land in which you are now, we are now living, referring to Canaan. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So again, as he's getting older, he hasn't yet got any children, and God's promising. And again, we read earlier, he thought he was going to have to give it to uh, Eliezer, his servant. And God said, no, you're going to have a child. I'm promising that. And he has to believe God as something that seems completely impossible. I mean, think of that. If God's promised you something and it looks completely impossible, here you are, you're Abraham. You have no land at all. You're a wandering herdsman. And God is saying, this land is going to be all yours where you're at. This huge land is going to be yours. And you're going to have a child who is going to uh, uh, be a child of promise and his children and so on will be inheriting this land. That sounds crazy. You know, we wouldn't believe that uh, if somebody told us such a thing. That sounds totally crazy. But Abraham had the faith to trust God for what seems impossible. For us, I think what seems impossible when you really stop and think of it, uh, as our bodies get older and worn out, uh, the thought that after we die, these bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be perfect in every way, and we're going to stay that way for all eternity, that sounds impossible. When you really think about it, it just totally sounds impossible because everybody we know around us gets old and dies. If they make it to being old, they die, and they wear out, and, and the, every one of us is experiencing that more as we get older. Some of you young folks have not any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but as we get older, we realize that, that, uh, that our, our bodies are wearing out. But the promise that God gives us that seems impossible is that in eternity we're going to have perfect bodies to, uh, to serve God in for all, forever and ever, through all eternity. And so we can believe God even though it seems totally impossible because he's promised that to us in his word. Well then, uh, further on, Abraham, Abraham trusted God even though there was the expectation that difficulty for his people would come that God would never, nevertheless um, uh, bless his people and take care of them through adversity, uh, verses 6 and 7. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Yet, uh, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So he promised Abraham something that, again, not only seems impossible, but it involves 
uh, a great deal of, of adversity, a great deal of oppression that's going to happen to his people, to Abraham's descendants during this time. And again, that's the story, and, and, and um, uh, Stephen will continue that story throughout this passage as we, as we go through it. The, uh, the idea that Abraham's descendants would uh, eventually wind up in Egypt after, after uh, uh, Joseph is taken into Egypt and after the famine that causes everybody to leave uh, the Canaan, Canaan land and go to Egypt. And they'll spend 400 years there during the time they go, from the time they go there when everything is good and honky-dory until 400 years later when a new pharaoh comes in who doesn't have any clue anything about Joseph and he is looking at all these people that have moved in or have been living here for all these years and saying, yikes, if we ever get in a war, they might join our enemies. What are we going to do about that? So he puts them into slavery and makes them uh, build uh, the, the pyramids or whatever they were building out of bricks. And so they were put under oppression. But then again, what happens under Moses, the people come out because God punishes uh, Egypt, he punishes Pharaoh and punishes Egypt, the oppressors, by the, the plagues that he rains upon them and takes the people out and they eventually, again not under Moses but under uh, Joshua, they eventually go back to the Canaan where they can indeed worship God as he said in this place. So this promise, hundreds of years of oppression, hundreds of years of, of, of horrible act, uh, uh, activity taking place against the church against the people of God and it's the same thing that again we need to recognize as the church as I've been talking about as we look at the adversity that comes against the church and as I said I I, I believe that that's going to happen it's the cycle that goes out through history is the church gets oppressed through each uh, through the different ages and that's going to come again the adversity that comes against us for the enemies of God they will oppress the church. They will persecute the church. And whether or not any of us is persecuted, I don't know. But it's going to happen. The church is going to see that more and more as time goes on. But again, you can take uh, comfort in the fact that God will judge ultimately all those who oppress the church. There's going to come a day, a great judgment day, when the Lord Jesus comes back. And he will judge all his enemies all those who came against his people, all those who came against the church, he will judge his church's enemies and they will pay through eternity for their uh, activities against the people of God. So again, you can trust God through adversity, whether you experience it yourself or whether it comes elsewhere within the church, you and I can trust God for that, for that time that he will keep us and he will keep the church well, finally, in the latter part of this, uh, Stephen refers to uh, the covenant of circumcision. God gave Abraham a sign and a seal of his covenant of circumcision as an external promise to him. And it's a reminder again to us that we can trust God's sign and seal that he's given us as a sign of the promises that he is giving to us that he will, through his sovereignty, carry us through to the end to be his people eternally. Uh, again, take a look at that verse, uh, that last verse. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. 
And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The covenant of circumcision, God had made the covenant with the, the splitting of the animals with Abraham, as we read. But then he told him to, to circumcise all the males that he had in his family, all those that he owned as slaves and his children, to circumcise them as a sign and a seal of the covenant that God had made, the promises that God made. Now, it's important that we understand something about this. I don't know anybody who would voluntarily circumcise himself. And an eight-day-old baby most certainly can't do that. The point is, it's an external action that's taken. God says, do this to the other person. Do this to the eight-day-old eight baby. Do this to, if it's an adult that hasn't been circumcised, they must be circumcised to be part of the covenant community. Why? Because it shows that God gives alien righteousness to his people. It's not that circumcision saved anybody. It didn't. But it's to demonstrate that it's God who is the one who is keeping the covenant on our behalf. And so you and I today, we don't use circumcision. We have baptism. As covenantal Christians, we understand that baptism replaced circumcision. But again, look at, look at baptism. You can't baptize yourself. Oh, you could, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't count. I could dump water on my head and say I'm baptized, but no. Somebody else baptizes me. So if you're a, an adult believer and you're baptized, it's because a minister of the gospel is baptizing you. And the same thing for a baby. A baby doesn't baptize himself. We baptize children. Again, why? To show that this is external. It's alien righteousness. The promises that God gives to us through baptism are the promises that he's the one that's doing the saving. He's the one who's going to take us all the way through. And so he made that promise to Abraham as a promise of the earthly promises that he was going to get. But for us, for eternal promises, now we live in a time where no blood is shed for our covenant. Uh, sign and seal of our covenant. No blood is shed. We now live as we are baptized to identify in what Christ has done for us in baptism. He is sovereign. He's in control of your salvation. You don't have any part in that. God saved you and he will keep you saved because it's an alien righteousness that's external. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, but God gave him the faith in the first place to be able to believe God for his promises. And so therefore, uh, when he went about circumcising those in his, in his uh, family, he was just showing that he believed that God was in control. We have a sovereign God, a sovereign God that can always be trusted to be faithful to you and me to keep his promises, and that's especially to keep his promise to carry you all the way through this life into the next because your righteousness, like Abraham's righteousness, comes from him. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that our crucified and risen Savior will bring us through everything in this life, whatever it might be, and bring us into eternity with him. We thank you that that promise is there, that it's not up to us, that we are the beneficiaries of it, that we indeed live lives of gratitude because of it and therefore desire 
to represent you in, in this life by living lives that honor you and honor your law. But Lord, we thank you that we have nothing to do at all with our salvation because we couldn't do anything to save ourselves or to keep ourselves saved. So we thank you for Jesus Christ and what he did for us, for his love for us, for your love that you would send him to die so that we might be saved. Help us to be aware of that as we go about our lives, that we indeed are beneficiaries of a sovereign God who has determined and called us to be his so that we might be his for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.